Pray for a moment, please. Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear today, that you would break apart the confusion that rests over the good news, and that you would, you would help us, Lord, uh, to hear your word speaking to us. Holy Spirit, would you come now? Would you fill my words? Would you especially fill and release your words to us that we might be led to Jesus? We pray in his name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all this morning. We are in our second week of the church season of Advent. You can tell by the number of candles. If you ever get confused which week are we in, the candles are your clue. And we're also in the second week of our preaching series called Arrival. It will coincide with the weeks of Advent. You know, this is a a kind of a season in the church year that has a three-dimensional, it's a 3D season, if you will, because it's got both a past and a present and a future dimension to it. Um, we, We focus in these four weeks heading up to Christmas on the past, because we recognize Christ's first arrival, his first coming, when he came in humility, when he entered in God with us as a child, born in a stable in that faraway place of Bethlehem. And so we prepare to celebrate Christmas as we look back to God entering in, to God's first arrival. And it's got a future dimension, because we're always as people of Christ looking toward the future. We're looking toward his second arrival, his second coming, when he'll come not in confusion, in sort of uh, uh, humility, but he'll be seen by all uh, as the Lord of heaven and earth, as the judge of the living and the dead, coming in power and great glory. And so we look to the past and we look to the future, but we also recognize that there's a very present tense reality to our Christian faith. We prepare our hearts for Christ to arrive in our lives now in the places where we need him today, the places where we need him to intervene, the places we need him to reveal himself to us that we might know him, that we might love him and walk with him experiencing our faith today, past, future, present. And that's why it's such a beautiful multidimensional 3D season. And so this year in this preaching series, we're exploring the themes of Advent. You may not have known this, but these candles actually represent the great themes of the Christian life. And as we work our way towards Christmas Day, that Christ candle in the center, we look at different themes. Last week, we looked at the first candle, which is called the candle of hope, and we focused on hope. This week, we're focusing on that second theme, which is peace. Everybody say peace peace. Someone sent me a meme the other day, and it was a picture of Rafiki. Y'all know who Rafiki is? If you don't, there were a few at the right one, eight o'clock service, who didn't know Rafiki. Rafiki was the sort of shaman-like baboon character in Disney's The Lion King. Okay, now do you know who Rafiki is? I know if you're under a certain age, you already knew. If you're over a certain age, or maybe you're just, I don't know, you don't, you meant, no, no. Okay, Rafiki's the shaman-like baboon character in the animated movie, The Lion King, also a Broadway play, very popular Broadway play. The meme was of Rafiki, 
And Rafiki was sitting, shaman-like, in a lotus position, right? Fingers out like that, cross-legged. And the meme said this, the path of peace begins with three words. Not my problem. Not my problem. I think that pretty well sums up how many people view peace. It's either an absence of problems, right? Life's going pretty good. Things are smooth sailing. Not too much crisis going on around us. Or it's a kind of sort of emotional peace symbolized by Rafiki and that lotus position, a kind of internal sense of well-being and order. I think it's that thing that so many people are running after these days. That's why so many people are trying other forms of spirituality because they're looking for that kind of peace, an inner kind of peace, the kind that is subjective, a kind of well-being and order. Now, here's the thing. The Bible talks about that kind of peace. It's called the peace of God. Everybody say, peace of God. It's called the peace of God. There is a peace of God that is subjective. It is experiential. You can actually feel it, live it, uh, have it enter your life. But here's the thing. The Bible never starts with the peace of God when it's talking about peace. The Bible starts with something that's more foundational, that is the basis for the peace of God, without which you'll never have the peace of God. And that is the the reality of the peace with God. Everybody say peace with God. Those are important differences. Those prepositions mean all the difference in the world. The peace of God is something that is subjective. Peace with God is an objective reality that the Bible talks about. Look at your scripture sheet there. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. I want us to read that and just let it sink in for a moment. Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. Peace with God means that the state of hostilities between us and God are over. Peace with God is peace without regard to how I feel. It's objective. It has nothing to do with if I'm happy today or I'm not happy today, whether I feel secure or I feel insecure and a complete mess. Peace with God is an objective reality. Peace with God Peace with God, though, peace with God means that there's a hostility that exists outside of peace with God. Do you see that? There's a flip side. So not peace with God is a thing. Until salvation, the Bible tells us there's a war going on in our lives between us and God, between God and us. And there, there's really... Two things that happen when we disobey God, the Scripture says. Uh, there is something that occurs when we, when we do it our way, to quote Frank Sinatra, I did it my way, when we, when we sin. It's not just that we kind of cross a line or break the rules, although that is a definition of sin. 
It's not just that I kind of fudge it because uh, I didn't quite make it. I didn't quite do what I want or maybe I didn't quite do what God wanted. When you sin, you assume at the very heart of it that you have the right and authority to do so. We want to make it about the lines we cross, but there's something even more fundamental behind it. That in sin, we assume we have the right and the authority to do so. In other words, it's a way of claiming the kingship or the queenship of our own lives. Of saying, I'm the one who ultimately is the authority of life, of existence. Kind of like wearing a crown. You've decided to put the crown on your own head. I don't care what you say, God. I won't acknowledge you, God. There's all kinds of ways this manifests in people's lives. Typified by those first words that frustrate parents, no, and later mine, that penchant to see ourselves as the center of all things apart from God and without reference to the Lord. Listen to these words from this poem. Some of you probably know the last two lines, and I'll get to them. Most of us don't know the first lines. From the poem Invictus, there was a movie made about it, and it's kind of quoted in the movie as sort of this really cool thing that athletes say. And you'll, you'll, you'll know the last two lines for sure. You've probably seen them in break rooms on catchy slogans. But, but listen to these words from the poem Invictus by William Henley. Out of the night that covers me, Black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. Very American sounding, isn't it? Very much, we will rise again from the ashes. But if you keep reading, you get to the lines where the punchline comes in, and he says this, it matters not how straight the gate, that's a direct reference from Scripture, How charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That's the part you've heard. I am the master of my fate and I am the captain of my soul. That is at the heart of hostility with God. That's actually a really heartbreaking poem. It's sad that it's been made a slogan for so many because it's about an unsubmitting life, an unsubmitted life. And that's the way people live apart from God, unsubmitted lives. Now think about it, whenever two parties both claim a kingly authority and absolute control over something, there's a war. That's the way war works. And in our world, there have only been something like 200 years in the five or 6,000 that have been recorded historically where there have been no wars. War is the natural state of things on this earth because war outside of us between nations has a beginning within us toward God, a hostility toward God. We need to understand that God claims kingship over you. Not just out there somewhere, up there somewhere. God claims kingship over you and over everything and over me and over everyone. And so the first thing that we have to see is that no one on their own is at peace with God. 
That is not the natural state of things in this world. That's a fairy tale that there would be peace apart from God. It just doesn't happen. And if you don't believe me, try it for a while. Pay attention to life. Watch the news. I know most of us avoid it at all costs these days because there's anything but peace being described. Now, the second thing that we need to know when we're hostile or in a place of hostility with God is that our disobedience, our disobedience means that God has a problem with us. And that's weighty, and we should, we should really recognize that. It's not just that we broke the rules, we fudged here, there. Now God has a problem with us because there's a war going on that's proven by the way we have lived, the way we exist. And the scriptures, especially Romans 1, tells us that we are then under the wrath of God. And everybody hates that in our culture. I just want to tell you, I'm going to talk about, I should have said this at the beginning, the two things people are most afraid of. The wrath of God is one of them. I'll get to the other one in a minute, so don't tune out. Because that's actually the good news. I'll get there. Now, when the Bible talks about the wrath of God, it doesn't mean that God is vengeful or vindictive, like some sort of irate father, drunken, running through the house, losing his cool and beating everybody in sight with a belt. That is some people's experience of wrath. The wrath of God ultimately means God lets us have what we want. And if we don't want him, then he loves us enough to say, then I give you what you desire. Unfortunately, to choose to be apart from God is to choose death. Not just the kind of my body expires death, but an ultimate eternal death of separation from life itself forevermore. And that is not good news. There's a verdict that sits against us. And the sentence cannot merely be discarded or tossed away. The soul that sins shall die is what the scripture tells us. The sentence cannot be discarded because it's been written into existence itself. A payment has to be made. The penalty has to be paid. And that, of course, is where the gospel comes in. Go back to the scriptures there. Verse 6 of Romans chapter 5, because this is where we begin to see who the real God is. Verse 6, please look at this. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. Let's translate that for a minute. Parents, think for a moment about your children. Probably nearly every parent in the room would die for their kids. Grandparents would probably say the same thing for their grandchildren. I, got, I see heads nodding. You know what I'm talking about. Husbands and wives, assuming the relationship's going pretty well, right? You would die for your wife or your husband, right? Brothers and sisters, maybe when you're grown up and you've worked through all your issues, right? Friends, we might dare to die for someone we love. That's what it means by a good person, somebody with whom we have good relationships. We see this in, in the military all the time. Valor is rushing into battle on behalf of others, putting yourself in harm's way to protect your comrades. It's a form of love, a willingness to sacrifice for those whom we love, even if that means to die. The gospel 
has nothing to do with that. That's the gospel according to Ellen. And now I'm not knocking Ellen, you know, the TV show host, hostess, right? She, she gives all these great prizes to all these worthy people, usually moms and school teachers and, and people who are struggling, but it's always based upon the fact that they deserve it because they've had a hard go. Now I'm for it. Hear me, don't hear me wrong. I'm for that. That's a really sweet thing. It's just not the gospel. The gospel is right here. Look at verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we're at war with him, while we are hostile to him, while we have put the crown upon our heads and taken authority over our own lives, snubbing him in the process, well, God says, I will show you what I'm really like. Yes, I am holy, but I am also loving, and therefore I will come and die for those who trust in me. And it's mind-blowing. It's absolutely mind-blowing. The problem for us 2,000 years later is we've heard that enough, at least many of us have heard that enough, that we go ho-hum about it. That God would die for us before we ever even look toward him. That God would die for you and for me to take a penalty upon himself that we rightly and justly deserve. That's the gospel. Go back to verse 1 of Romans 5. Therefore, everybody read that for a moment. Pause. We have been justified by faith. That's a legal term too. When you put your faith in Christ, when you recognize what he has done for you, the Bible uses another word for you, and that word is justification. Now, it means you're as right as Jesus is before God. It means that every sin that you have ever committed, both in the past, in the present, and in the future, see why it's an Advent theme we're working on? That every sin you've ever committed, past, present, and future, is forgiven. Now, here's where we get to the scary thing. It means you're righteous in God's sight. Just as right as Jesus is. Oh, Lord. Not even a smile. All right, let's think about this for a minute. I want you to think about the person you least like in the world. That shouldn't be hard. I hope they're not sitting on the row with you. (laughs) But, you know, real life... The people you just don't get along with, you don't like, maybe that, are you at least as righteous as they are? Let me see a show of hands. Yeah, okay, most of you think so. Look at Trevor. Stand up, Trevor. He's got this beautiful purple on. He's got this beautiful purple on. Are you at least as righteous as Trevor? Show of hands. They're all going up. No. (laughs) You should prepare me for this. (laughs) I'm preaching today. Are you at least as righteous as me? Yes, Yes, we are. Are you at least as righteous as Mother Teresa? Let me see a show of hands. Are you at least as righteous as the Apostle Paul? Are you at least as righteous as Jesus? 
until you say yes to that, the gospel in its fullness has not settled into your heart. We have been justified by faith. While we were still sinners, while we were his enemies, he showed what kind of love he has for us, that he would die for us. Why? Because he loved us. And he wants to make us right in his sight. Does that mean you won't ever sin again? Of course not. Just pay attention to your life. Ask the people around you. Of course, you still have a tendency to do those things you do not want to do. But until the depth of the righteousness of Christ given for you, the justification, Bible term, settles in, you're not going to actually have a hope that goes like this, even when life is going like this. Peace of God comes out of peace with God. And most people, I think, believe they have peace with God, but they tend to live as though it were not true. When that occurs in your heart, when that occurs in your life, you suddenly can rest before God. You won't take for granted sin. Why? Because gratitude starts to come in. The love of God starts to fill in. I get to live a life with him. He is now within me, and he draws me away from the things that would cause a rupture in our immediate relationship where I tend to lose the peace of God. The peace of God, an internal peace, an experiential peace, a peace in the midst of the ups and the downs of life comes out of a peace with God. So if you're at peace with God, you always have a place to come back to objectively, despite how you feel on any given day. And if you will simply bring yourself back to that, meditating on it, thinking about it, asking God about it, praying and saying, would you reveal that to me? What you'll experience is the peace of God, which passes all of our understanding, which passes our thought life and passes our emotional life That's what the peace of God flows out of. Friends, that's the cornerstone of what we live into. That's the love of God for you and for me and for the whole world, which is why the message has to be shared with others because it's free and it's available. And the only travesty is when we won't believe it ourselves and share it with other people. Now, I told you there are two things that people are terrified of. They're terrified of the wrath of God, and they want to get rid of it as some antiquated thing. Our culture hates that. But here's the thing. A lot of church people are terrified of the righteousness of Christ because it feels a little bit heretical. It feels a little bit like, gosh, I don't know. And You may have grown up in a church that reinforced just how bad a sinner you are, just how lousy you are, just how terrible you are. Yeah, your behavior might not be good. The question is, have you trusted Christ as your righteousness, as your offering, as your Savior? Think about it. Here's what I love about God, and I'll wrap up with this. God is both incredibly mysterious and totally obvious at the same time. Mysterious. He enters into the world. The God of the universe enters into the world as a baby. That's mind-blowing. That's mystery. We'll never fully wrap our heads around it. 
But just to wrap his mystery in the obvious, he has the stepfather, Joseph, name the baby Jesus. Yeshua, Joshua, the Hebrew means God saves. The mystery wrapped in the obvious. God has not come to condemn you, but to save you. And just to be sure you don't miss it, he names himself his son. God is salvation. God saves. Jesus. That's the gospel. And until my dying day or your dying day, my beloved friends, I will not stop praying and crying out to God that that will sink into your hearts. Because from there comes your freedom and your joy. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, you're good. You love us. And it's not based on our performance. Father, we ask forgiveness for the ways in which we've treaded upon the wonders of your love. Either because we've rejected it or we've gotten apathetic toward it in our living. Father, would you stir and renew in us the joy of salvation? Jesus, would you make yourself real in our hearts this Advent? Would you break through the religion of our lives? Would you break through the apathy of our lives? Would you break through the fear that settles over us? And would you save us in every way that salvation comes? And in saving us, Lord, would you let the peace of God be our daily experience? because we are now at peace with God. We pray, Lord, in the beautiful name of the God who saves, Jesus our Lord. Amen.